If you're wondering why we're taking a break in Genesis this morning, it's because so many people are out and the passage that we'll be speaking on next week is a very important passage. And so uh, I did not want a lot of people to miss the next two weeks in Genesis um, are, are probably the two most important passages of the book of Genesis because those two uh, sermons will really dictate all of the rest of the Bible. There's uh, Genesis 3.15 that kind of is the foreshadow of what's to come. And so I, I did not want a lot of people to miss uh, next week because it's going to build on the following week. So we'll take a break this morning and we will come to Mark, the Gospel of Mark chapter 12. Uh, it's a very familiar passage to us. It's where Jesus is questioned about the greatest commandment. And so I'm going to look at three things from this passage this morning. The three C's, if you will, from this passage. The concern, the commandments, and the conclusion. The concern, the commandments, and the conclusion. Just a little backdrop on where we're at in the book of Mark. Mark, uh, there's this shifting moment for us in this chapter. Uh, what has happened to Jesus up until this point in this passage is that Jesus has been being questioned over and over by the religious people, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the rulers, the scribes. And in, Gen and in Mark chapter 12, we see three consecutive places that the scribes question Jesus. What the scribes, the Pharisees, and the Sadducees are trying to do is trap Jesus. They want to trap Jesus so that they can trap Him in His words and get Him fumbling and stumbling and that He would become a liar or He would blaspheme who God is and so that they would have the ability to bring charges against Him ultimately so they could bring Him to trial, to try Him and to bring Him to death. And so here in Mark chapter 12, it's the last of the times that Jesus is going to be questioned by the rulers. We see that in the passage. At this point, it says at the very end that no one dared to ask Him any more questions. Uh, many scholars believe that they didn't want to ask any more questions because so many of their people began to be converted because of Jesus' responses. Jesus is giving these intellectual, gospel-centered responses and is drawing people away from the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the scribes. And so they're losing numbers. They're losing ranks within the people. And so they're terrified that their numbers are going to decrease and that there will be more people that are going to come to be believers and disciples. And so they've stopped asking questions. But in Mark chapter 12, there's three questions that are posed to Jesus. And He does a masterful job of answering. The first question is about where should they pay taxes? Who shall we render to Caesar what is Caesar's? And so... Jesus says to them, just give to Caesar what is Caesar and give to God what is God. And then the, the Sadducees come up. The Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection. They knew about the resurrection because it's throughout the Old Testament. So the Sadducees did not believe there was going to be a resurrection. So they questioned Jesus about the resurrection. And then Jesus tells them how wrong they are. And that there is the God of the Bible, a living God, which means there will be a resurrection. Well, then we see in this passage the last question that is asked. Unlike the first two questions, this man is not coming to Jesus to question Jesus, to trap Jesus. There's something in his heart. We see that at the end of the passage. But there's something going on in this man that he really has this eager desire to know 
about what Jesus' response would truly be. Just because he was a scribe did not mean he was a wicked man. He was a very curious man. He had a concern. And so he comes to Jesus after seeing how Jesus had responded. And it says this in verse 28. And once, and one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another and seeing that he had answered them well, he asked Jesus this question. The curiosity of this man. Now, you, you must know what a scribe is. A scribe was a, a religious man that knew the law. He was an expert in the law. He, he would have known the law, the, the first five books, the Torah, inside and out. Not only did he know the law, but he also knew how to apply the law. He could interpret the law and apply the law. And so people would come to the scribes and ask the scribes, hey, this is what the law says, so how am I to apply it to my daily life? And the scribe would tell them, this is how this law applies to you today. And so this man comes to Jesus and asks an important question about the law, about the Torah. Jesus, what is the most important out of all the laws? Well, this is what's true about the Old Testament. There's 613 laws. So this man knows that there's 613 ways that the people of God are to live in relationship with God. And he's like, hey, that's a lot. So what if you were to boil all those down, how would you boil those down? Here's what's very interesting about the law. There's 613 laws. 248 of those are positive affirmations. You do this, this happens in a positive way. But there's, six, there's 365 negative laws or negative consequences. You think 365 is by random number? That's one for every day of the year. This is what else is true about that number, 365. Scholars say this about that number. There's 365 negative prohibitions in the Old Testament. If you took the, the account of the Ten Commandments in numbers and you counted every letter in the Ten Commandments of the recorded section of numbers, you'd come up with 365 letters in Hebrew. So they're saying there's 600, there's, there's 613 letters, excuse me, 613 letters in Numbers account of the Ten Commandments. And so they derive that, hey, all the laws summed up in the Ten Commandments, but it's also summed up throughout the whole Bible. There's 613. And this man wants to know, hey, what is the greatest commandment? You know, there's other places in the Bible that talk about what the greatest commandment is. This man would have known that. You don't have to turn there, but take notes this morning. In Psalm chapter 15, there's 11 different ways that we are to live with God. He says this, the psalmist says this, how can we get to heaven? How can we ascend to God's holy hill? And he says this, if you want, you can turn there. You don't have to, I will read it for us. But he says this. He says, O Lord, who will sojourn into your tent. Who shall dwell in your holy hill? Who can get to you, basically, is what the psalmist is saying. How do we get to you? And then the psalmist answers that question with 11 things. You see, this man would have known this passage. He says you must walk blamelessly. You must do what is right. 
You must speak the truth from your heart. You must not slander with your tongue. You must not do evil to your neighbor. You must be above reproach with your friends. Your eyes may not look on other people with despise. You must honor and fear the Lord. You must swear by your own hurts and does not change. And on and on he goes. Eleven places. He says, if you want to be with the Lord, this is what it looks like. And so this man is curiously asking, hey, is Psalm 15 the way we are to live? We know in Micah 6.8 it says this, three things. He told you what, what is good. This is what the Lord requires of you. To do justice. To love kindly. And to walk humbly with the Lord. The man would have known that passage. The man would have known Habakkuk chapter 2 verse 4. The righteous shall live by faith alone. And so this man has curiosity. How are we to live if there's all these laws? There's these other places that say this is how we're to live. He comes to Jesus and just says, Jesus, tell me how I am to live. A concerned man. And Jesus being Jesus, we can turn back to Mark chapter 12. Answers his question. Now this is not in the text. But we see this throughout the Bible. How Jesus will look on people with compassion and pity and concern. I believe this is the eyes of Jesus as he looks at this man with compassion and pity. To answer his sincere question. He says this is the greatest commandment. You want to know what the greatest commandment? Jesus answers, the most important is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your mind and with all of your, your strength. And the second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There are no other commands greater than these. Jesus goes to a very familiar passage. Everyone in that crowd that day would have known what Jesus had just quoted. Jesus had just quoted what the, the Jewish people would know as the Shema. The word Shema means to hear, to put ear to, to listen to. The Shema was given by Moses to the people of God when they came out of exile. And when they came out of exile, God promised them to live in a nation, to live in a land that was full of milk and honey. A promised land is what Jesus called, uh, what God called it. And Moses says, you can go there to Deuteronomy chapter 6. He says, this is how God calls us to live in the land. God's given us promises in land. And he goes on and on and says, this is how you are to live. And then he says to Jesus, then Jesus says to this man, you are to love the Lord your God. You want to live in this land? Then love God. Let's circle the word love in that text. The word love means this. It comes from the word agape, which means to love with all of your intelligence, with all of your will, and the purpose, and with sacrifice, and with obedience. He says you must love God with all of your intelligence, will, purpose, choice, sacrifice, obedience. That's what the word agape means. That's what God, Jesus is going to say here in the text. You want to love God? It starts with you loving God. You want to know the greatest commandment is this. To simply love God. My question to you, my question to myself this morning is, 
Do I love God? Do I really love God? You see, Jesus then goes on and says this. He adds one to the text. He adds the last one. He says, you are to love God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your might. Four things. You are to love God with your heart. That is the core of your identity. It's who you really are. Do you and I, does this church love God with all of our heart? Who we really are. You know, you know a lot about a person. If who they are at 1 o'clock in the morning is the same man or woman they are at 1 a.m. in the morning. It's to be a man or a woman with integrity. Can we say with all integrity of heart, we love God? The next one, he says this, with all of your soul. That word soul means the idea of your emotions. You love God with all of your emotions. Are your affections, are your emotions stirred by God? I don't know about you, but oftentimes my emotions are stirred by a lot of other, other things. Yesterday was one of them watching Texas football. Maybe for you Van, Vandy fans or Vol fans, it's, that's what grabbed your emotions. They played one great quarter, but it takes four to win a game. The next one is this. He says, the mind. The word this, do you love God with all of your mind? The word mind is your intelligence, your will, your intentions, and your motives. Christ says you want to love God, you've got to love Him with all of your brain. I don't know about you, but there's a lot of things that take space in my brain. And the last one says this, with all of your strength, that's the person's might or physical ability. I don't know about you, but when I go through that list, I fail. Because what Christ said is this. Hear, O Israel, love the Lord your God. Love the Lord your God with what? All of your heart. With all of your soul. With all of your mind. And with all of your strength. Now I can honestly say I've never loved God with all of my heart, soul, mind, and strength. Well, here's the great beauty of that. We have a great Redeemer that though I cannot, He will empower me and forgives me when I do not. And so we must be honest with ourselves first and foremost. Not one person in this building or on this planet can love God solo with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength. You need the great Redeemer to intercede for you on your behalf to give you the ability to even love God with the remote crumbs that we love God with. That's God's grace on us through Christ Jesus. He says this. One, one writer says this. I, I want to read this quote. I wrote it in the front of my Bible as a way to always remember it when I was studying this week. He says this. It does not take much of a man to be a believer but it takes all there is of Him to be a believer. I mean, we must give all of our attention, affection, to Christ and Christ alone. That is what Christ is calling us to. That is what Christ is saying to this man. If you really want to love God, you've got to love Him with 
everything you have. This is the greatest commandment. And yet, if we're honest, we fail at the greatest commandment to love God. Am I the only one? But there's great hope. We're going to get to the hope at the end of this passage with the application. He doesn't just stop there. He says, not only are you to love God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength, but the second is just like it. You are to love your neighbor as yourself. He gets this from Leviticus chapter 19, verse B. If we cannot love God with everything, how will we ever love our neighbor as ourselves? This is what the Apostle John says in his book in 1 John chapter 4, verse 20. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. And he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. If we have hatred in our heart for our brother or our sister in this building, there is no way for us to love God is what Jesus is saying what the Apostle John is saying. And I would say this, and I'd submit this to you, if you hate your brother, there is no way you are truly loving God. Your love for your neighbor will only flow out of your love for God Almighty. You will not have the ability to love your neighbor as yourself apart from the first commandment. I'll say this. I believe we fail at the second commandment because we have utterly failed at the first commandment. You want to know why racism is so rampant in our country? It's because people do not follow the first commandment. It's not because they don't follow the second commandment. They don't follow the first commandment, which is to love God. If you love God, you're going to love your neighbor and you're going to go back to what we've been studying in Genesis chapter 1. That all men are created in the image of God. And if we love God, then we'll love our neighbor as ourselves. You see, why is there such hatred for homosexuality in the church? Now what happens is we begin to hate the person, not the sin. But God's called us to love every man, every woman, every child the way we are to love ourselves and to love God. Now that doesn't mean we tolerate the sin, but we must be loving people to our neighbor no matter what the sin is. Because truth be told, we have all failed at the first commandment to love God. So the greatest commandment is to love God and then love other people. So he says that you want to know the greatest commandment is to love God and to love others. Now look at the conclusion. The conclusion is awfully terrifying to me. The scribe, the religious leader, says this. The scribe said to Jesus, you are right, teacher. He says, you're spot on. You're dead accurate with what you just said. I am a man of the law. I know the law. And what you just said is so true. You have truly said that He is one. God is one. And there's no other beside Him. There are no other gods beside Him. And to love God with all of your heart and with all of the understanding and with all of your strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all of the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. You've got to remember, 
that the Old Testament was built on a sacrificial system. That, that, that the Old Testament, the people of this day would have saw that the Old Testament sacrifices was the way to love God. That was the way to live rightly with God was to make offerings and to make sacrifices. And then Jesus says, no, no, that is not the way to love God. It's not through your sacrifices. It's simply by loving God and loving other people. And then the man of the law says, you are dead accurate. Now I bet the other scribes and the Pharisees were having a conniption fit in the back. Like what? What is he? No. Like Moses told us to make sacrifice. And now this scribe says, no, you're right, Jesus. It's simply to love God, to love other people. And now look what Jesus says in response to this man. It's terrifying to me. Then Jesus saw that he had answered wisely. And he said to him, you're not far from the kingdom of God. Though he answered rightly, he was still not, look at the words, in the kingdom of God. It is not what we know that brings us into the kingdom. It's what we believe that brings us into the kingdom. I do not know if this man was converted that day. But Jesus said to him, hey, you're not far from the kingdom of God. What you know, you now must go put into practice. Is basically what Jesus is saying. If you want to be in the kingdom, not just close to the kingdom, then you've got to believe in what you just said. My greatest fear for us is we know the Bible, but we don't live out the Bible. One writer says it this way. I wonder how many Christians have got a ticket from the airport to go to a destination that, that checks their bags and that goes through the security, that walks down the terminal, that, that waits in line, checks their ticket at the counter, walks down the, the ramp onto the, the, that gets you onto the plane, but they never get onto the plane. So they never make it to the destination. You see, all their thought process was right, but the last action is to step onto the plane. Put what you believe to be true about that ticket, that that ticket is going to get you to a destination. But just having the ticket is not what gets you to the destination. It's stepping onto the plane. It's not simply what you know, is what you must believe. And your belief must be followed by action. Have you placed your belief and is your life showing that? Or would it be said of you, hey, you're not far from the kingdom of God. Like being not far from the kingdom of God, but still not in the kingdom of God. My greatest fear is that many of us will not be far from the kingdom of God. My greatest fear of we will not be in the kingdom of God. Because we do not love God and we do not love our neighbor. But look what Jesus does by way of application. Jesus is going to show us what does it truly mean to love our neighbor. Let's turn to John chapter 13. John chapter 13 is the night before Jesus is going to be arrested. A few days before He's going to be hung on a cross and killed. 
So he gathered his closest friends, the twelve disciples, in the upper room. And they're about to have the Passover together as a way of remembrance of God's great deliverance of God's people from bondage and slavery. It says this in John chapter 13. This is page 900 in your pew Bible. And now before the feast of the Passover. Jesus knew that His hour had come and to depart out of the world to the Father, having loved His own who were in the world. He loved them to the end. Jesus loved His disciples all the way to the end. During supper, when the devil had already entered and put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray Him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into His hands, and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper and lay out his outer garment, taking a towel, tied it around his waist, poured water into a basin, and began to wash the the disciples' feet and wiping them with a towel that he had wrapped around them. So one by one, he loved them to the end. He's He's showing us how do we love our neighbor. We love our neighbor through service. Now, I want you to remember what happens at the end of this passage. So he goes around all 12 disciples and washes all 12 disciples' feet. Now, what's going to happen in a few moments is this. He's going to make three bold predictions and still washes every man's feet that he makes these three bold predictions. The first prediction is this, that one of his closest friends was going to deny that he even knew him. Peter. He then makes this bold prediction that a man that he just washed his feet was going to betray him with a kiss. And he still washed his feet. With what? Love. And the third bold prediction is this. He says that the rest of them, when when the shepherd is beat, the sheep will scatter. The rest of the disciples scatter. So you got two of his best friends. One denied him, one betrayed him, and the rest of them scattered. And what does it say? He washed their feet. You want to know how to love your neighbor? Wash their feet, even if they've denied you, betrayed you, slandered you. And on and on we go. And we must serve them with love the way Christ Jesus served us. He then says this, in closing, after Judas had had his feet washed, after they had taken the Lord's Supper together, Judas has left the building. So it's eleven of them sitting around the table. And Jesus then gives them this commandment in John chapter 13, verse 34. A new commandment I give you, that you love love one another just as I have loved you. Remember, He had just washed their feet. He had just loved them. How can we love this way? You also are to love one another. By this, love. By this, the way you love one another. 
all people will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. I simply ask us two questions this morning. The first is this. Do we love God? Not did you walk an aisle. Not did you pray a prayer. Not have you come to church your whole life. But do you love God? The way that we love God is knowing God's love for us. That He sent His one and only Son. That we should not perish but have everlasting life. That God loved us first. And if God loved us first, we are to love Him in response to His love for us. The second is this. Is there any place in your heart that does not love your neighbor? Is there any bitterness in your heart for your wife, for your husband, for your children, for your mom, for your dad, for your in-laws, for your neighbor? Do you love your neighbor with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength the way Jesus loved His disciples? The one that would betray Him, the one that would deny Him, and the others that would scatter from Him. Do you love God? Do you love others? As Christ has loved us, that is the greatest commandment. Let us pray.